What is going on, everybody? It is me coming at you from my very own studio, finally. Uh, however, the studio is has become a storage unit for all the stuff that we didn't want in the house. Don't worry, I'll get there. I'll take care of all this, all this shit eventually, and we'll be able to hopefully start recording video. And posting it on YouTube and all that, all that crazy stuff. But until then, I'll be doing what I've been doing since the beginning. Uh, recording where I can, using whatever space is available. So, I know last week, uh, last week's episode was was a little late. It was it was somewhat short. However, the the hope of haunting story itself, I believe, is. It's a very interesting story. It's a not very well-known story. Um, so I hope you enjoyed it. I know I enjoyed it. I thought it was a... I don't know. There's just something about the story that that rang true to me. You know, it was a, a pastor in the 1930s who who had to deal with this this haunted house. You know, obviously, I, I highly doubt, you know, they people went around in the 30s making up stories about... about haunted houses and when they did they talked about ghosts this guy's talking about a a a, a walking talking corpse like that's it's unusual but who knows maybe maybe he didn't make it up i i just i just feel like there's something about it that that rings true to me so i hope you enjoyed the story i was supposed to go out with uh mike family of uh in the shadow of big red eye you know he had he had come to my you know, a neighboring town for an event. We had we had discussed going out that night, uh, and I was going to show him where I had my Bigfoot encounter. I don't know, you know, it was either a Bigfoot or a, a hunter. I don't know, but uh, we were supposed to go, and you know, all day it was like, yeah, 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 we'll go, we'll go, go. And then he was like, oh, I'm too tired, so I was kind of shit out of luck. <laughs> I was going to use the audio from that as the episode. But obviously, I didn't get any audio because we didn't go. Uh, so thanks a lot, Mike. However, however, next time, I'm dragging you out there. And we're going to go whenever that is. So so I pretty much just had to rush around and, and figure out something to, to record. And that was when I came across the Hopewell Haunting. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, I thought it was fun. Um, but this week, this week, is a much more in-depth interview with a fascinating individual. Um, but we'll get to that in just a minute. I first wanted to go over the, the UAP whistleblower congressional hearings. So David Grush, he was the, the UAP whistleblower that, that came out, I think it was beginning of of july uh well anyway he um he appeared before the house oversight committee to discuss these these uaps and whatnot so yeah so for you who don't know who david grush is i pulled this off a cbsnews.com article by stephan beckett 
pretty much sums it up fairly well. He's a former military intelligence officer turned whistleblower. He served for 14 years as an intelligence officer in the Air Force and National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Um, And he appeared before the House Oversight Committee's National Security Subcommittee alongside two former fighter pilots who had firsthand experience with UAPs. Uh, So Grushy, he tells, you know, he tells Congress that they're being kept in the dark about these unidentified anomalous phenomenon uh, known as UAPs or or what you we used to know them as UFOs, uh, alleging at the hearing that executive branch agencies have withheld information about the mysterious objects for years. Who knows? Maybe, you know, I don't necessarily know how the executive branch works in their in their hiding of of uh alien intelligence information. However, I I would highly doubt that. The president, you know, the the former president would know. And even if he wanted to know, I highly doubt uh, anyone would tell him, you know, just because they're they're moved out every every four years. You know, there's a chance to get a new one. And every eight years, well, we definitely get a new one. So I highly doubt they're going to share this highly, highly, highly classified information with an official who cycled out every eight years. You know, these are groups and and individuals within the government who stay within the government for their entire lives. I'm I'm sure. Uh, Grush, he talks about a multi-decade UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering program. Uh, And he says he has interviewed officials who had direct knowledge of aircraft with non-human origins and that so-called biologics were removed from some of these crafts. So. Representative Tim uh, Burchett. He's a Republican from Tennessee. He's kind of. Uh, he's kind of spearheading this battle. Uh, he wants to get to the bottom. Of what is going on. With these UFOs. You know most people. Within the government probably laugh at this. Uh, however since that. That New York Times article dropped. It was like, what, 2018? I don't know. It was a few years ago. I think more and more officials within the government are taking this this serious. So Timber Shetty says, we're going to uncover the cover-up, and I hope this is just the beginning of many more hearings uh, and many more people coming forward about this. Um, and I know within the past few days, there was an article written by Ken Clippard, Clippern Clippenstein, Ken Clippenstein, but this, this Ken Clippenstein guy, he wrote this article discrediting Grush. So he wrote this article about how Grush was committed to this mental institution for being suicidal. Clippenstein says that he received publicly available police records that he obtained via FOIA, the, the Freedom of Information Act. Um, while others are saying that, you know, there are shadowy individuals within the government who are sending, you know, Grush's medical information out to try and discredit him. But who knows? Like, I'm guaranteeing you this wouldn't be the first time that the government has, has pulled sh- shady shit like that. I think we all know that the government knows something. 
that they're not telling us. You know, there's Roswell, New Mexico, which on July 8th, 1947, the Roswell Army Airfield, they put out a press release that says they're in possession of a crashed flying disc. uh, And the rest is pretty much history. Were there bodies? Were there not bodies? Um, What was there? Was it a hot uh, weather balloon? Was it a flying saucer? You know, who knows? And there's another one that that's, I think, becoming more mainstream now. And, and that was the, the Kecksburg, PA, the Kecksburg, Pennsylvania uh, crash, which happened on de- December 9th, 1965. Uh, and this was an object object that was shaped like an acorn uh, and it had strength, you know, and the government almost immediately came in. They cordoned off the area. Uh, and But while it was being towed out, it crashed in the woods and they had to load it up onto a flatbed and drag it out of there while it was being towed out um onlookers you know civilians of of kecksburg they see these strange hieroglyphics like carved along the whole outside of this this weird object so those are those three uh very i don't want to say well known but three examples of uh, a crashed UAP that the U.S. government may have in its possession, as well as any, you know, extraterrestrial bodies that were with crashed ships. I don't know what you want to call them. Uh, I also saw that there was an an article, I think it was in the Washington Post, about the dense run treasure. I know I've talked about this in the past. Uh, I think I think it I think it was probably in the Washington Washington Post because of that that um that huge hoard of Civil War coins found by that that guy in in Kentucky I believe. Uh, but but I thought that was interesting. So, and for you who don't know what the dense run is, the dense run treasure is a supposed uh I think it was like. Six or nine tons worth of gold that the FBI uh, pretty much stole out from underneath, you know, a research crew, a crew of guys who had been researching this area for 10 years or more. Uh, They had teamed up with the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, and then they were were moved on to the FBI. They were working with the FBI, and then the FBI ends up digging the treasure the night before they were supposed to dig it together, you know? Uh, So, you know, then then they go there the next day to dig the treasure, and the FBI is like, oh, nothing's there. Let's go home. When in in reality, they they totally dug up the treasure that night while the, you know, these treasure hunters weren't there. But, uh. I believe there's a court case now. I think this article is referencing how they're waiting uh, to see if the, you know, the the FBI is, you know, is just refusing to cooperate whatsoever. Um, so I think the court case is is to see whether the FBI has to, you know, share more of these documents they have with them or not. But it's 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 crazy. It's interesting. Like I believe these guys they worked this location for ten years. They they had definitely found this treasure and they were it was like 500 million dollars in gold with a 10% finder's fee that would be like 50 million dollars <laughs> so they're out 50 million dollars because the government got greedy 
So yeah, let's take a break real quick here, and then we'll get on to our regular show. All right, what is going on, everybody? I see that we got some recent reviews, which is great. Uh, Keep it up. You're doing awesome. If everyone who listens to this show was to leave a rating or review, we would be set. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Nobody seems to want to leave a review. So I beg you now, please, please, please pause the show, leave a review. It helps so much. Uh, with these ratings and reviews, we can get new listeners that we wouldn't normally have. You know, I, I don't need to explain the, the way the system works, but I think we're all well aware that the more reviews you have, the more listeners, the more easy it is for listeners to find the show. So please keep it up. We need more reviews where, you know, if we could get to 100 reviews, uh, that would be awesome. We are We are far below that. However, I believe, like I said, if everyone listening to the show right now paused and left a review we could be at 100 reviews easily by tomorrow so please stop what you're doing just leave a review i will appreciate it far more than you would ever know you know almost canon's not one of these shows that uh was able to piggyback off another show i don't want to name any names um however we are clawing our way into that group of, you know, well-known shows. I hope to be there soon. Uh, we can't do it without your help. We need your reviews. Um, and if you leave a review, you, re- you, you have the chance to receive a free sticker. All you have to do is get a hold of me, um, you know, so I can get your information and I will mail you out a free sticker. So if you left a review, don't forget to get a hold of me. I know there are several of you. Uh, if you want your sticker, get a hold of me. We can't do it without you. We need your help. Much appreciated. So yeah, don't forget to leave a rating, leave a review. I can't express how much we here at Almost Canon appreciate your support. We honestly, we can't do it without you. So please pause what you're doing. Leave a rating, leave a review. Now, let's get back to the show. All right, guys. So tonight... So tonight we're talking with Alexander Petikov. You all probably know who he is, but in case you don't, Alexander is an adventure filmmaker who has traveled not only North America, but the world in search of the unknown. Uh, he is from my very own backyard across the mighty Connecticut River in the live free or die state of New Hampshire here in New England. Alexander is well known for his small town monsters productions such as Tales of the Honey Island Swamp Monster, Lions of the East, On the Trail of Champ, and his wildly successful Bigfoot Beyond the Trail docuseries. And so much more. Tonight, we'll be stepping away from the Bigfoot talk for a little while and focusing on two other topics Alex is familiar with. And those will be mountain lions, lake monsters, and then Sasquatch of New England. So without further ado, Alex Petikov. 
Yeah, so I guess what I wanted to really talk about um, was mainly just three three things because I know you've been you do all sorts of stuff like you you yeah man you've been all over looking at all sorts of things. Um, I really want to just focus on champ, mountain lions, and Bigfoot in New England. Okay. Right. A lot to cover, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure we can get to it. Yeah, for sure. Right, right. Because, I mean, I saw that you've been to, you're right, you just got back from Alaska. Yeah. You mentioned that. Um, and I saw you were down in Honey Island Swamp Monster. Where Where's that from? It's I know it's down south. It's in Louisiana. Right, it's like, right. it's called the Honey Island Swamp. It's like uh, just... Uh, a little bit east of new orleans maybe about 30 40 minutes so it's right in that area so i was down there in february yeah so it's kind of been a pretty crazy year so far (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) to say the least right right um so yeah i saw that you've been all over the place and what really grabbed my attention was i remember it must have been four years ago now maybe even five that you did the the champ on the trail of champ I watched that. Yeah, I got that out. poster right there. Yeah, I see it. I see it. Um, I remember when that came out. I was like, "Oh, I missed it. I wish I was there." But so, what? What did? What did you think of that? Um, do you think he's? Do you think he's there? Do you think Champ's real? Um, so uh, Champ, Champ is a interesting topic. I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't thought about it in a, in a few years now. I've just kind of heard a little bit about it here and there, but. Back in 2017 and 18, I did a series called On the Trail of Champ, which was about obviously the Lake Champ Lake Champlain monster, mm-hmm. the lake monster, so-called American Loch Ness. There's a lot of different names, Champ, Champy, those are the kind of names. When it comes to water, there's something really weird going on with uh, large bodies of water like Lake Champlain seems to be. Obviously, you've got Loch Ness is probably the most famous in the world, you know, one of the most famous stories in the world. They're mm-hmm. actually just doing a... Uh, Loch Ness hunt here pretty soon some kind of big search I, I read, read about that recently mm. I don't know what that's all about but yeah Lake Champlain is really interesting growing up here in New England I um from New Hampshire and I didn't actually know a lot about the Lake Champlain situation you know, I'd been to Lake Champlain I've been to Burlington if you go there Burlington Vermont you're practically right on the lake right mm. didn't think a whole lot about it I'd heard it on some documentaries but I was always more interested in Loch Ness, which is across the ocean, which is kind of ironic because Lake Champlain is like three hours away. Yet I was more interested in this thing across the ocean. So I was uh, I was lucky enough to go over to Loch Ness in 2015. And I did a little short documentary on that. But then when I turned my attention to Champ in 2017, I realized there was a lot to that particular mystery. And it's even further stretching back than Loch Ness. Whereas Loch Ness kind of started more in the 1930s and that sort of time period. And there's some alleged sightings that go further back than that but nothing i mean the modern like loch ness kind of thing started in the 30s whereas lake champlain i mean you had newspapers writing about it in the 1870s mm, yeah talking about the lake champlain serpent scare and pt barnum put up a pretty sizable bounty for capture of champ dead or alive so that's pretty interesting this was 60 years prior to any any kind of loch ness stuff mm-hmm. and there's supposedly native american stories too mm-hmm. So I, I, when I look at the champ subject, I don't know, my, my my thoughts have kind of evolved over time. I don't really know what's going on. I mean, it seems like something is happening. People have seen something unusual. 
bodies of water are weird, but I think the history around Lake Champlain is particularly interesting in terms of the kind of the, you have to look at the whole story, the whole broad picture to kind of understand maybe what might be going on. Uh, whereas Lake Champlain, so what I kind of mean by that is that Lake Champlain itself is this really weird, unusual lake in North America. I mean, it's one of the largest in terms of size. It's like in the top 20, I believe, in terms of uh, huge lakes in North America. It's uh, 120 something miles long, I think 12 miles wide at the widest, mm -hmm. almost 420 feet deep in some of the deepest parts. And that's that we know of. I mean, there's possible underground or underwater caves in there. We know there's above ground caves that used to be part of the lake. And that's what's so interesting about it is it's so unusual in the sense that it was actually part of the ocean not that long ago. They think 10 to 12,000 years, that's kind of a rough, rough estimate. But it was actually just an arm of the Champlain Sea, which connected to the Atlantic Ocean. So uh, there's even some some of the hunter-gatherer groups in the area possibly uh, were there at the time when it was still part of the sea. And they were actually hunting walruses and seals and whales and stuff that lived in the lake. So uh, what's really interesting is Vermont state fossil. And not a lot of people know this. I mean, Vermont's a landlocked state, right? It's not like New Hampshire or Maine, where we have a seacoast around the Atlantic. Vermont is landlocked, unless you consider Lake Champlain, you know, technically uh, like a half of their border with New York is a lake. So in one sense, but it's not ocean, it's not saltwater. But the Vermont state fossil is actually a beluga whale. Mm -hmm. People would say, well, how would Vermont have a beluga whale if it was landlocked? Well, actually, it was discovered in the 1800s when they were digging a railroad bed in uh, Charlotte, Vermont, not that far from the lake. They found this skeleton and it turns out to be a beluga whale that's believed to be from this Champlain Sea time period. So that's really kind of really interesting. There's not a lot of places, I think, that have that sort of interesting history like that. And, and, and contemporary Lake Champlain, so modern day Lake Champlain has species that they believe adapted from saltwater fish that would have lived in the Champlain Sea. So you've got stuff like the, the sturgeon, even the, the landlocked Atlantic salmon that live in the lake that go up the rivers to spawn. They are actually adapted. I mean, you have salmon in many other places, saltwater, right? So these animals adapted and there's other potential fish that have adapted from that sort of time period to live in a freshwater lake. So that's that kind of opens the possibility of what if something else adapted as well as the lake was cut off because as the glaciers receded in Canada, the water levels uh, were going down and that's essentially how Lake Champlain ended up as a lake as opposed to being just an arm of the ocean. So uh, it, it's just that I think you have to look at that whole picture to kind of understand what Lake Champlain is. This is not something that happened very long ago. This is fairly recent. That's the reason why a lot of the areas around Lake Champlain between the mountains you have these kind of lowland areas. It's a lot of farmland, a lot of agricultural areas. And just north of Lake Champlain, where it ends in Quebec, Canada, you have these plains that just go out all the way to Montreal, very flat terrain. That's where a lot of the agriculture in Canada happens. And in that part of Canada and Quebec, that used to be all underwater. It used to be part of the sea. Same part as New, uh, both the New York and Vermont sides of the former Champlain Sea that are now farmland. This is all very fertile. We know places that used to be part of the ocean end up becoming extremely conducive for farming in the future. Something about that as the as the water kind of lowers itself. So it's it's just something something about that. I find that really interesting. So if you if you drive, if you're going to, let's say, from Burlington, Vermont to Montreal, Quebec, Canada, 
you'll be driving parallel to the lake for quite a while. And as soon as you cross into Canada, you go past the lake, what's left of it, and you'll just start seeing these expansive plains. And those are those, that agricultural land that was all ocean. So there could be also, I mean, there's all sorts of skeletons and things that have been discovered in that area that were from, from that sea, not only the beluga whale in Vermont, but other things as well. I mean, seals, other kind of pinnipeds, other creatures that uh, would have been normal in an aquatic kind of environment. So the question is then, what if there's something else that we're not familiar with? Is that what this champ thing might be? I mean, I don't know. It's really tough to say, but it's just so interesting. And Lake Champlain today still, despite all the issues it's had with pollution and everything else, is still one of the most biodiverse lakes in North America. I mean, there's a lot of different fish species, I think up to 94. Um, I don't think that's including a couple of the invasive ones as well. And you've got sturgeon there that can get, I mean, they're endangered now, but formerly some of the sturgeon that have been caught out of Lake Champlain are, I mean, the size of a small car. I mean, mm. just absolutely monstrous. Sturgeons can grow to huge proportions. I, I've seen pictures in Vermont uh, it's one restaurant in Middlebury, Vermont. I saw pictures on the wall hanging of a sturgeon that had been pulled out, I believe, on the New York side of the lake, laying down, and there's a bunch of guys standing around, it, and it's like a monster. I mean, it's like they're pulling a shark out of the water. Right. It's a freshwater fish, right? Yeah. Um, so it's you can't fish them anymore. But so there are gigantic fish, and there's a lot more fish food. There's a lot of plankton. Uh, those kinds of little microorganisms in Lake Champlain than, than in Loch Ness. Loch mm -hmm. Ness is notorious for not having a lot of food sources, not a lot of fish. Lake Champlain has not only uh, fish, but you've got lots of reptiles and amphibians, whether they be frogs or turtles, many different types of turtles, snapping turtles. You've got uh, rattlesnakes in some of the islands there near Lake Champlain. Uh, you've got just water snakes, all, all kinds of aquatic life that's supported by this lake. Uh, as opposed to say Loch Ness or something like that. So it's just the, again, going, looking at the whole kind of picture of Lake Champlain is really where the interesting sort of things begin to start making sense in terms of, well, this place is huge. It's got a lot of food sources. It's one of the most interesting lakes. It, it actually flows northbound as well, which is very unusual for a lake. It, again, fits in that kind of strange category. So uh, it's a very strange place and it's got a long history of weird, Sightings even going beyond just Champ stuff, but Champ obviously is kind of more of the well-known, probably the most well-known North American sort of aquatic cryptid. Mm, right, right. Um, and what it, I know it interests me a lot. And same with Loch Ness. You, you have the River Ness, I believe, that flows into the, the ocean. And then yep. um, Lake Champlain, uh, I forget the name of the river, but it flows, you know, right into the, eventually you could get, to the Gulf of St. Lawrence, you know, I don't know. I don't know exactly how far it the is. The Richelieu River. Right. It probably. Yeah. The, the Richelieu River goes from Lake Champlain into it, north uh, to obviously to the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And then obviously that's part of the Atlantic, kind of the North Atlantic. But it also it's connected through the Hudson River as well down towards New York. And it comes out towards New York City. Now, obviously, I don't think anything's going through there. And there's there's actually this is the interesting thing whatever it is in lake champlain would have to be landlocked or not landlocked lake locked i should say because there's a lot of um dams and mm. locks and changes in elevation in terms of water on both of both the american side and the canadian side but what's really interesting is the hudson river has a lot of large sturgeon there's actually even a few years ago national geographic found evidence of a 14 foot sturgeon in the hudson river 
which is you know, it's connected to Lake Champlain. You can see if you go on YouTube, you can watch these documentaries, people that will go all the way basically from Canada to spend like a month on a sailboat and just all, cruise all the way out to New York City and come out into the Atlantic down there into the Long Island Sound, go through Lake Champlain, all this kind of stuff. And it just shows you how wide of an environment this is. It's pretty wild. Right. But um, yeah, whatever it is, it would have to be in the lake. If it is some sort of a biological creature, it would have to be kind of confined to the lake. And that doesn't mean, you know, not necessarily it's a huge lake. So obviously mm. that is a factor. But uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting place. Mm. Yeah, I never actually thought of all the dams and locks and stuff along the river there. Um, Quite a few. Right. Yeah, there, there has to have been. Sorry, I I'm keep looking at notes on my phone. Um there's a couple I I don't know what what your take on this is. It's probably more on on the they call it like the woo side, you know. Um but there's a theory that I heard or an idea that uh quartz crystals they somehow like locked in this, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, like an echo I guess or a, of of a lake monster and every now and then some, you know, when the conditions are right, it releases kind of like a, a spectral, I don't know, like a spirit or something, you know, like a ghost of a plesiosaur or whatever. And it swims around for a little while and it goes, I don't know, something that I've always thought of because it's interesting, you know, you hear it, especially on Lake Champlain, how it all started with the serpent, you know, it was always serpent shaped in the 1800s. And then um, the surgeon's photo comes along of, at Loch Ness and it, you know, it changes to this plesiosaur type creature. And uh, I don't know, it's just something I always thought maybe, you know, maybe that's happening, but who who knows? Well, it's, it's interesting. So for example, I mean, uh, when it comes to Loch Ness, I'm, 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 I'm more skeptical of Loch Ness than I am of Champ. I will say that, which is really interesting. Having kind of looked into the Loch Ness thing and originally having gone there, I came out of a little bit more skeptical just because you look at the differences between Lake Champlain and Loch Ness and Lake Champlain kind of blows uh, Loch Ness out of the water, so to speak, in terms of habitat, food avail availability, just the size of it dwarfs Loch Ness in so many aspects. Yeah. Uh, whereas uh, a lot of the people in the original sightings in the 1930s of the Loch Ness Monster described this plesiosaur-like creature, which is obviously what the surgeon photo then was kind of influenced to create what it looked like. But a lot of the people who had had that sighting had seen the recent King Kong movie, which came out in the 1930s, which uh, there was a scene with a plesiosaur-like creature that's a lasmosaurus or something like that coming out mm -hmm. of the water and they're sort of fighting it. And that is believed to perhaps have influenced part of the description of the Loch Ness Monster, which is really interesting. That's kind of a phenomenon. I know people, I have law enforcement friends who have told me about this concept that says, well, if there's something that's very popular at the moment in the media or in film or television that they will almost see an effect of it in reality and the way things are reported. I don't remember the term. I'd have to check on it, but I think that's kind of a direct example of that. Whereas with champ, you had the descriptions of this serpent like creature. Uh, I mean, and even, even the, some of the descriptions that were more snake like they, it was still, I mean, very similar to some of the reports modern day where it is this kind of more plesiosaur looking thing, but you know, you've got this kind of multiple humps coming out of the water, head sticking out of the water uh, there's been a couple of champ sightings on land, just a few of them. So that's kind of another interesting aspect to it. Yeah. But uh, when it comes to this more kind of paranormal theories, I mean, it, it, they're just so tough to quantify. I mean, how do you, 
that's essentially you could just say anything and it's it's kind of see what sticks sort of thing um whereas you know lake champlain being the habitat that it is is there some sort of perhaps a biological precedent for something like that it's possible i mean it, it is a probably a slim possibility but uh, people tend to go i think more of the paranormal side of things when it's it's easier not easier to explain but it's it's a way to explain away things but i think it kind of muddies the waters in a way because it it really is there's no way to actually kind of prove or disprove that i guess it's what's tough about it um so i don't know i mean i've heard those theories of course i've heard that there's ghosts of plesiosaurs and all sorts of things like that I've heard lots of weird stories like that, believe me. Um, and I'm not shooting them down. Absolutely not. I'm just kind of trying to figure out, well, okay, this is, let's deal with this thing. Let's see what's going on here. Um, the thing about water too, is it's very confusing. A lot of people, even people who have spent a lot of time on water, the ocean lakes, they can easily be confused by phenomena that's going on in the water. Uh, it's, I mean, I've had people send me photos that they claim, oh, they, they, they saw this champ creature and they get the photo and it's just a bird it's, you know, it's a, a loon or something like that, just a little bit ways out on the water. And they they were so convinced that apparently it was a dinosaur-like head. That kind of threw me off. There was one story I was told by a guy up in near, um, was it Albans, Vermont, I believe, or not Albans. Mm. There's, you got St. Albans, but you've also got another location up there closer to the Canadian border. I think I want to say Albans. Oh man, I, I'm blanking on that. But either way, I was talking to this gentleman and you know, we were talking about Champ and he, he brought up this sighting he had of this creature. He was out fishing near this bridge very close to the Canadian border on the lake. And it was kind of dark, late at night sort of thing. He couldn't really see a lot. And he's hearing this splashing and this thing's coming closer to him. And he sees, he's like, then I see it, this dinosaur-like head coming out of the water and this thing swimming around. I'm thinking, my God, this is the biggest thing I've ever seen. And it gets closer and closer and it gets so close to him. He realizes it's a muskrat because it got up right next to his boat and he was able to see it. Right. While he's fishing. So he said that was the power of not knowing what you're looking at, coupled with a local folkloric story that he, he convinced himself for a moment. He thought he was seeing champ. Now imagine if he wasn't able to see that it was a muskrat, he would be, you know, that he would consider that probably a credible champ sighting, right? So water can play a lot of tricks on us. It's a confusing kind of uh, environment. I'm not saying this, that all witnesses are mistaken. Absolutely not. I've talked to some on Lake Champlain that I have a really hard time explaining what they saw with a logical explanation, right? I mean, somebody that is out on the water their entire life, that's a scuba diver, mm -hmm. and they claim to see what looks like a the back of a gigantic turtle-like creature just bobbing up out of the water and just disappearing into the water. Um, other sightings, you know, people saying, can't, you know, seeing on shore, uh, seeing two of them at a time. <laughs> it's 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 interesting. So it's 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 like with a lot of the other kind of cryptozoological topics. There are some, uh, you know, very interesting aspects to it. Some that are you know, maybe human imagination. Bottom line is there seems to be something going on. What that something is, is I think what everyone wants to find out, which is what we don't know. Um, if it is some sort of biological entity, it would have to be, you know, something that's not coming out a lot. It's sort of either in small numbers or very deep in the lake. And again, I mentioned there are underwater caves potentially in the lake. We have a few examples of caves that are a little island. I've been to a couple of these caves. They're on an island in the lake. And it's just these big caves and they actually used to be underwater when that was part of the Champlain Sea, of course, when the water level was a lot higher. 
So there probably are caves that we don't know about in Lake Champlain. There are underwater mountains and mounds that are in the lake as well. Uh, it's just a vast habitat. So there really could be a lot in there that we don't actually know about. Right, right. I tend to think they're just like, sounds like giant eels. All the old, older, you know, stories of champ, just they just sound like giant eels. But um, I've got a personal favorite kind of theory, if you want to hear that. Uh, yeah. Some people have suggested some sort of a large unidentified turtle species that maybe turtles can elongate their necks quite a bit and they wouldn't have to come up for air that often. They're, they can live a very long time. One of the champ witnesses I spoke to described what he saw was a gigantic turtle-like creature with an elongated neck. That's what he thought. I'm not saying I endorse that theory, but it's interesting. I mean, it, it, turtles hibernate in the winter as well. We have big snapping turtles that live in Lake Champlain. They bury themselves in the mud. So uh, that that kind of makes sense. That would be a consistent sort of behavior. Um but you know why something like that hasn't washed up dead or mm. anything like that. That's kind of a question that you, a lot of people start to ask. And yeah, it's definitely uh, once you kind of go down the champ rabbit hole, it can take you a lot of different directions. Now, did you see that that sonar image that that went around a couple that last week or the week before? I did. Yeah, you know, I think with sonar is tricky. I don't know. I'm not exactly convinced. I might seem like I'm coming off kind of harsh, but. Um, you know, I really try to be as level-headed about it as possible. I don't know. I think some people are saying they believed it was a school of fish to kind of move in that pattern. Mm. There's also these organic, I don't know what they are. They're these sort of microorganisms that they create they, they create this blob. And I've seen them, they'll like attach to the side of floating logs out there. And it looks like this gross just <laughs> thing floating in the water. Uh, I, I, I can't recall what they're, what those things are called, but um a late uh, champ researcher, Scott Martis, who passed away a few years ago, mm -hmm. unfortunately, who was, it was in the series he had, and it's in, it's in my series, a radar blip, him and the other champ researcher, William Draginis, who also passed away, unfortunately, very untimely um, together. They, they would research on, on their boat and they'd gotten this sonar blip that looked very similar to whatever this thing was that was being shared recently. And I thought that was interesting, but I don't know. Sonar is tricky. Um, I know there's other alleged champ sonar things that have been captured before, and some of them I'm a little more skeptical of, of others, especially due to some of the people claiming to have gotten some of the sonar blips. But there's been, uh, you know, scuba diver I know on the lake, he has talked about being on the lake most of his life, scuba diving extensively, all the shipwrecks. He rediscovered ship wheels that have been lost for hundreds of years out on the lake. He described as having a couple experiences where they would get something really big on sonar and then it would just kind of disappear. I mean, yeah. disappear in the sense that it would, it would move away very quickly. It wouldn't just vanish. It would, they kind of see it in the distance and then it would move away extremely quickly. And his, in his kind of thoughts, it was almost too quick to be a, a school of fish in that kind of rapid of a movement. Right. So I don't know what that means. So, um, yeah, he said it's only happened a couple of times while out on the lake. Uh, so whatever that means, I don't know. I mean, again, we do have these gigantic fish that are absolutely out there that can be a factor too. You've probably got some sturgeon in that lake that are, I mean, if you're in a little kayak and a 10 foot sturgeon pulls up next to you and just is floating right next to you, that is, that's a monster by definition. I mean, you're probably going to be pretty freaked out by that. I, I know I would be. <laughs> Me too. That's why when we were out there a few years ago filming this 
show called Chasing Legends. We went out near St. Albans Bay where the Mansi photo was taken. Yep. We went out at night on kayaks and it was a crazy, crazy experience because beautiful star coverage above us. And then you're just on this black lake. And it's just, it was a freaky feeling thinking, well, what if you know, I'm not even worried about the monster? I'm thinking, what if a sturgeon comes up and bumps the my my kayak i'm flipping over at night in the middle of the lake it's like 60 feet beneath us pretty freaky right yeah i mean they can get probably over 20 feet right i i don't know what the biggest example of a sturgeon is that's ever been caught but i mean probably yeah like i said in the hudson river there was evidence of one that was almost 14 feet and that was found on a side scanning sonar some of these sturgeons out in rivers out west get huge as well yeah Yeah. Uh, they just they just can grow. I mean, they just, they essentially are, uh, they don't, there's no limit really to how big I, I think they can get, I'm, I, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. I mean, and with that, that sonar image, it, it's weird how it, it popped up and it got all this attention. And then he said he, he had uh, some video to go along with it that he was going to release, but I haven't oh, I been looking that. for, I haven't seen anything. Um, But somebody did uh, point out to me that, at the bottom of the picture, there's like three lines that look like could be mooring lines of some kind. Like, I don't know, maybe somebody sunk some because it looks like a plesiosaur. Like it's right. Crazy. Well, that's what's interesting. Like I said, that sonar blip that uh, Scott Martis and William Dranginis had got a few years ago, uh, that was very similar in shape. It was like this blobby kind of body and this longer sort of neck. And they said it distinctly moved away from them. So it, kind of was in the area and you know maybe a weirdly shaped log i guess that's kind of possible but uh so yeah i mean i really just wanted to mention that that sonar image and uh i guess we could leave it champ there um <laughs> it's, it's definitely interesting i haven't you know it's a beautiful place to go visit i haven't looked into the stories in quite a while obviously mostly do bigfoot stuff nowadays but it's definitely a place it's got an interesting kind of uh Oh, I don't know what's going on here. Sorry, what is it? I think everything's fine on my side. Okay, I was I thought the screen was going off for some reason. Um, I know I did. I I will mention this really quick. I did get a a report from there's this master diver. I I she lives in the town that I live in, and she's been on the show a couple of times. Uh, Net Spalding. I don't know if you ever heard of her. Um, I'm not sure. I know she does a lot of work in in southern or i guess uh kind of my side new hampshire so closer to the connecticut river but um she was out on the lake with someone and they were going on a boat and then all of a sudden in the middle of the lake it said that they were in like i don't know like five feet of water and there was something like right underneath their boat that was following them she swears and but uh yeah uh, man it's interesting you know just some of the stories i heard like people i interviewed in the documentary like that one guy uh, Mr. Dottilio, he was, he owned the, I don't know if he's still alive, but he owned the bait and tackle shop in Burlington. And we went and interviewed him and he was the one who in my documentary, who said they, they were fishing in the late 1950s near Juniper Island. And they, like, they were gutting the fish and throwing the mm-hmm. excess in the water. And this thing he described as a head like this comes out of the water and starts eating the leftover fish. And is, and they, they all made a pact not to tell anyone because they didn't right. want to be seen as crazy and yeah. he said it looked like a dinosaur head. And he says 20 years later, they when the, the media started talking about Champ, then they kind of brought the story up. Um, there's even 
I know you talked about uh, in our, at least in our email correspondence. I believe we talked about Joe Citro. Yep. Um, and I've talked to him, and you know, I've interviewed him for not the mountain lion stuff, and he's got a lot of interesting stories. But he had a lot of champ stories too, and one of them yeah. that really intrigued me. He told me about maybe you could ask him about it in more detail. I remember just the basics of it was about this um, this person flying a plane over the lake, and it was kind of like right before sunset. And they were looking down on the lake and they saw what looked like this pleasy sort of like head sticking out of the water and looking up at the at the sunset. I mean, just kind of an odd description. And then you've got, of course, the the famous sighting there at the Our Family Boathouse in North Burlington on the mouth of Winooski River. That was the lady with her mother who saw two of them. One was outside the water and the other one was uh, they were kind of right. Two of them, a smaller one and a bigger one. They had seen them at separate times or I believe together. Um, but there was a couple sightings they had, and there was a bunch of sightings at the mouth of the Winooski River, as there are a lot of the sightings are at the mouths of the rivers. You've got like seven different rivers that feed into Lake Champlain, and around most of the major ones, you have sightings. So the Winooski River has a history of sightings. Mm-hmm. The Osable on the New York side, that's where the alleged Beaudet video was taken, whatever's up with that story. You've got Otter Creek down uh, further south of Burlington, that's had sightings. And what's interesting is those mouths of those rivers is where the fish like to come and feed. So there's a lot of food sources right there. Uh, so that's another kind of interesting factor. But what's the uh, what's the Bodette video? Oh, you, you haven't heard of the Bodette film? Was I, I remember there was one. It was either last year, or the year before, that a father had taken of something. Is is that what it is? And they were no. on shore and it was coming at them. No. That- that might be something else. I'm not sure oh, what that okay. is, but that video is uh, is from 2006. It was, I believe, 2006 or 2005, something in the early 2000s. It's a really long story, but these two guys uh, named Pete Bodek and Pete Bodet, excuse me, and Dick Afolter, I think their names were. They're two fishermen, and they were out fishing on the lake near the Osable River, and they claimed that this thing was coming underneath their boat and okay, creating yeah. these weird wakes. And they filmed it from above, and you kind of see this flipper and his right. head in the water. And that footage has never been released. It was only ever shown once on ABC News, and they were shown a few clips. Um, but the problem is now a an entertainment lawyer owns the footage and will not relinquish it. Um, and, uh, you know, I attempted to contact him back in 2018, no avail. Somebody else made a documentary about the film, trying to get it released as well, and nothing ever happened with it. Um, I know people that, you know, produce TV that have offered money to get the footage, and it's not the the money number was too low uh, people that have straight up offered like 10 grand to buy it and were laughed out of the room uh, so i don't know it's a very strange story unfortunately i don't think it'll probably ever see the light of day unless it must be real good mir- it's either real good or it's a real good fake because uh it's it just i mean at this point it's it's an unfortunate kind of circumstance but it's considered to be one of the kind of pieces of alleged champ footage i mean you only got a few really uh kind of examples that come to mind obviously the Sandra Mancy photo which is a photograph then you've got the um the Olson video from I think 2008 or 2009 of this thing swimming in the water near Burlington uh, and then you've got the Bodette video and there's a few others kind of more minor mm. uh, visual reports but yeah it's champ is man we could dedicate a whole hour just to I champ. know I know I know we, we gotta move on to lions because this is what I'm real excited to talk about mountain lions now now I've been told by Game Warden that you're, you're you'll you'll see a Bigfoot before you'll see a mountain lion in in Vermont. Um, Boy, I wish that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> right. This it's it's uh 
I, I love this. I love this topic. Um, I, I live in a, I grew up in a small town in, in Chester, Vermont, on this, you know, this back road in the middle of nowhere. And I have this one of my oldest memories. Um, and I've tried to look this up and I haven't found anything, but I swear it happens. I don't think I don't think I dreamed this up and I don't think I made it up. But I can remember game warden and state police coming to everyone on my street telling us to stay out of the woods. Um, you know, don't go, don't go out at night, stay out of the woods and blah, you know, all this because a lady up the road, her two animals had been dragged out into the woods and killed. Um, and then the state police and game wardens, they were up in the mountain looking for, they didn't tell us what, you know, uh, for a, a whole week. Um, and then they just left and, you know, nothing ever happened of it. But me and my family, you know, we like, we tap trees and we, you know, maple sugar and everything like that. And we've, we've seen tracks in the snow and tracks in the dirt. You know, my aunt and uncle, they've seen one on right. two different occasions. So, I mean, they're out there. I know they're out there. Yeah, well, um, I mean, Chester, Vermont, I'm trying to recall, uh, it, it's been a while, obviously, since I've done Lions of the East. You had the Reverend Baloo, that guy. He had a sort of panther or catamount hunting team in the 1930s, I think. They were looking. I think Chester had a had a panther or sighting or something down there. Yeah, yeah. It says 1934 to 1936. This was from your video. Um, yeah, there was some sort of club there. Yeah, so yeah, that was interesting. You mentioned Chester. And, uh, you know, I remember going with Joe Citro. It was either Chester or somewhere around there. And we saw Historical Society and we got to see this stuffed. Mm, Weathersfield. Mount. Weathersfield, that's the one. Yeah, it's... You gotta, you gotta realize that I'm, I'm literally all over North America. So no, I know, I know. Me, me having to go back to a project I did like two, three years ago is like, oh boy. <laughs> that, that's even you know? good that you got that close. I mean, that... but uh, I, because I remember going, it was like April of 2019 or something like that. I went out with uh, Joe Citra and we went, saw that, and kind of stomped around and we went to this area where one of the last panthers killed in that area or mountain lions was killed in that area under and i actually lost my gopro in this like crawl <laughs> cave type thing and joe had to go back the next day to get it for me i remember <laughs> that that was pretty funny but uh yeah the mountain line thing so long story short i did a project called lines of the east starting like 2018 or so right after i got done with the champ thing i transitioned to that um i was doing bigfoot stuff all in between but this was just sort of a focus i did i released it in 2020 right early 2020 right when covid started that was bad timing but um <laughs> it was it took me a while to do it and i interviewed people across new england uh, it was lines yeah. of the east the focus was mountain lions in the northeast so not only new hampshire obviously my state i covered that quite a bit i talked to game wardens here or fish and game guys that's what mm -hmm. technically technically they're fish and game officers i think in new hampshire you guys in vermont have the game wardens i interviewed a game warden up there in vermont as well um who was friends with the guy who does the kind of amateur mountain lion research up there towards burlington uh interviewed people in massachusetts kind of the whole new england area connecticut rhode island sort of area too it's just it's it's interesting because well the reason why I kind of went after that topic was I had so many people tell me their stories of seeing a mountain lion. Uh, you know, I'd go, go to a Bigfoot event or some kind of paranormal thing and gathering stories and they're saying, oh, well, I haven't seen a Bigfoot, but I, I swear there's a mountain lion. I actually had a buddy who grew up in uh, near Montpelier and he claims while well, he was hunting as a kid with his dad that they saw a mountain lion somewhere in the mountains around there 
And they just kind of didn't know that they weren't supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. They assumed it was sort of normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas that they're not supposed to be because mountain lions technically have been extirpated, which means they've made they've been made extinct in a certain area. So on the East Coast, they're supposed to be extinct, except for the population of Florida panthers down in um, Florida, of course. And I've done work on that too, and I continue doing projects kind of on the Florida panther. I find that really fascinating kind of animal. Uh, but uh, New England area is not supposed to have them, but there's a lot of sightings, a lot of stories. And you have the infamous 2011 Connecticut pan, uh, mountain lion that was killed, mm-hmm. whose supposedly genetic DNA was from the Black Hills of South Dakota, right. which means it would have traveled that distance. And I actually coincidentally met a police officer who was from a town over from where this mountain lion was killed. And he saw this thing a few days before it was killed. And nobody believed him. They thought, oh, you saw a bobcat or you saw something else. He's like, no, broad daylight. I saw this mountain lion, long tail with the black tip crossing the road. And nobody believed me. And then a couple of days later, this thing was killed not that far from where he was, you know, easily travelable distance by a mountain lion, like a couple towns over or something like that. And, um, you know, he, his I guess his sighting was validated or confirmed but think about how many other people have had sightings that haven't been confirmed and then you get into the weird conspiracy angle of it which honestly kind of surprised me you've got that and you've got the black panther element they're both weird but the conspiracy part is just bizarre to me um the idea there's a lot of distrust people think oh well the government knows there's mountain lions here they just don't admit it or they brought them in to control the deer population i've heard all kinds of theories and Mm. i think the way the way some of these government agencies act fuels some of the conspiracy. If, if there, if there is a conspiracy there, I mean, I'm not saying there is or isn't. It's just, it's a fact that people don't trust the authorities about it, right. which is really weird. I mean, see what's going on with like UFOs right now. Right. Uh, there's a lot of weirdness with the government, but this is mountain lines. I mean, this is not, it's not like a Bigfoot or a UFO where we don't know if these things are real. We know mountain lions are real. We know they used to live here. We know they can get here. There's nothing stopping a mountain lion from North Dakota or South Dakota from traveling out here. I mean, there's unlimited food sources. Um, so, you know, when I was working on Lions of the East, I had somebody contact me, a guy who's actually a biologist, uh, Rick Van de Poel, and he's actually in the documentary too. He reached out to me because I'd done some article in New Hampshire about the mountain lion stuff where there was, they were asking different opinions and I happened to be working on the project at the time. And I get this email one day saying, basically I'm, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy, but it was a conspiracy. <laughs> he's this biologist and he's worked with mountain lions out West. He's done a lot of credible work. He does ecological surveys of properties for construction. Like the guy has credentials. And he talked about in the early two thousands, finding evidence of a potential mountain lion up on a mountain kind of just north of the lakes, south of the White Mountains in New Hampshire in the Ossipee Mountains, which is this kind of weird circular range there. And uh, he said, you know, it was distinctly feline. He said it was distinctly mountain lion. He collects the scat samples that he finds on this cliff and he sends it to get tested in Wyoming with uh, some colleagues. And I guess they did the test and they came back as mountain lion. Well, he, he gives the results to the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department, and they apparently contacted the Wyoming Fish and Game or whatever their their kind of uh, right. department would be there. And they they got them to, they basically retracted it saying, well, upon further <laughs> analysis, we can't confirm as we did the results. That was kind of weird, right? That was that, I'm like, okay, maybe it's a one-off case. Maybe it was handled poorly, right? But then like this story from 2016 of the woman who got her 
horse attacked by something and that's in the documentary too you probably know what i'm talking about that was really weird i mean that one i still have trouble explaining so the story goes she she this woman and her husband they live in a rural area near the quabbin reservoir in massachusetts which is a very kind of rural area there's a lot of a lot of wildlife in that area they had these two horses and one morning they come out to the uh the horse stalls is to kind of check on the horses and one of them has is limping around has this big gash and is bleeding and they think oh my god you know what happened mm. whatever they assume it was probably an animal attack or something along those lines so they call the new hampshire or excuse me the massachusetts environmental police i think that's the name of the agency there it's the like wow. environmental dep i think department of environmental protection i think you got to understand every state has like a different you know <laughs> vermont has like fish and wildlife new hampshire's fish and game so they have game wardens game officers environmental police it gets confusing <laughs> all these states have different ways they handle like dealing with wildlife and nature so uh the, long story short the lady contacts them and they come out and they do an investigation and they actually tell her they don't think it was an animal attack at all i mean she thought probably a bear or something like that yeah. right normal right. creature she thought, yeah, that's probably what happened. But they said, actually, it's because of owner negligence that the horse, <laughs> horses got hurt. The horse got hurt. And that apparently really enraged them. I mean, they they had a very clean facility. They take pride in their horses. A lot of horse people are very, you know, there's like their yep. dogs, you know, or cats. Right. They treat them to that level, right? And it's part of their family, practically. Because what they had said was, oh, well, there's a broken latch of this gate it was found like 10 feet from the fence post. So what happened was probably the horse hit it and cut himself and knocked it over. That's what they said. They didn't buy the story, the couple, and they they were really ticked off by that. So they decided to do their own investigation <clears throat> to try and find some evidence. So they're kind of looking around all across the property, all across the area where they have, you know, where this incident kind of happened. There was a broken gate and where the latch was. They thought, well, maybe there was some kind of a struggle here, right? Because they, they said that one of their horses is more protective of of the other one and the young, the smaller one was the one that was actually hurt mm -hmm. so they they look at the area where this gate latch and kind of area was and there were these scratches in the fence post and there were these blondish hairs with follicles kind of embedded in the fence in the post in the wooden post they thought that was really weird and they kind of followed the trail of it and they go they started crouching down and they see on the bottom of this uh, like a two-tier one of those uh fences that just has the two beams wooden mm -hmm. On the bottom one, there's like a trail of blood along the fence post. And that's way too low to be one of the horses. So that, that was kind of weird. So uh, they did their due diligence and collected the samples properly. They collected the hair sample with the follicles and the, scraped the blood off of the fence post. And they sent it for testing at the University of Florida. And I actually have their final report that they were given. But they were pretty shocked to find out that the result that was given to them by the University of Florida, very accredited DNA lab, was male mountain lion is what the mm. the tests and they had again they had dried blood and they had hair with follicles they were able to look at so they had two sample sources for coming to the conclusion of male mountain lion now obviously they're not supposed to be there so they thought okay that's really weird so they contact the state massachusetts say well okay we did an investigation you know they're trying to again prove that it wasn't owner negligence that caused this injury on the horse Right. They give them, they give the state the results and Massachusetts says, well, okay, hold on. We want to do a, we want to get this tested somewhere else mm -hmm. that we can both agree to. So they decide to go with the University of Arizona, another well-respected DNA lab there. They they give the results in 
you know, they get the results back. Same, same result, male mountain lion. That's what it comes back as. And then the, the, the family, the couple there claims that after that, state of Massachusetts just stopped answering phone calls, just basically ignored them, pretend they didn't exist. It's just really weird. I mean, that kind of attitude, you know, that's just, I mean, how do you explain that? Right. It's right. Uh, yeah. So that it's, it's, that's a weird one, that angle with the conspiracy stuff, but yeah, the sightings are widespread. Um, there's a lot of interesting kind of, uh, reports and a lot of credible ones. There's even one a couple of years ago, I think after I did my documentary up in Maine, there was, uh, somebody had claimed to have seen a mountain lion near the Canadian border, uh, crossing a frozen kind of lake. And they found footprints that they believed were actually mountain lion. And I think even some of the state biologists said, yeah, it's possible. And there was a confirmed footage of a mountain lion. And I talked to the lady. I never ended up using the footage in the film. It didn't work out. I couldn't get to Maine for kind of the main portion, but she has this footage of a mountain lion walking through a field. I think it was um, right over the Canadian border, like right on the main Canadian border. I mean, she was, this thing easily could cross into the United States. I mean, you know, the animals do it all the time. Right. The moose, the bears, they do it all the time up there. It's a huge border. So this mountain lion was seen there confirmed by Canadian authorities. Yeah, that do believe that's a mountain lion. And uh, there were sightings in the town next to it in Maine of mountain lions. So, I mean, it's another one of those kind of cases of, you know, something's going on. Right, right. Um, I used to work at a cheese factory when I was younger. And there was a driver from Contacook Farms. It's in New Hampshire somewhere. Yeah. Um, and he told me that he was, they were told by the game warden or I don't know what whatever you call them. What do what what are they in New Hampshire? Fishing game. And officers? I think they're fishing game officers in New Hampshire, I believe. Yeah. Well, or like know, yeah. Something like that. Uh well anyway, they told the the farmers there that there were activists from out west who would capture female lions and bring transport them to the northeast because the males would go away you know they would uh i don't know wander away but the females they they stay within where they're born they stay within a radius that that yeah that's the reason why you have um you know these male mountain lions that are coming east from west because they once they kind of leave their their mother they're sort of on their own they're trying to once they're of mature age they're trying to establish their own family Right. You know, start start reproducing themselves. So, yeah, but the females, I think, generally tend to stay within like a few hundred mile radius, I believe, at least ones we know in the West. I don't know about the the, the habitat or the uh, the habits of Eastern cougar, Eastern mountain lion. Obviously, they're, they're no longer around. If they had modified behavior, I've heard theories that people say, well, they had a smaller range or maybe they had a bigger range. I don't know. It's it's hard to say because obviously they've been killed off you know, after the point we could observe them. So now either we have escaped ones like that or ones that are being transported or just coming on their own. But I see, I've heard that kind of thing before. I've heard people in upstate New York saying it's the state bringing mountain lions in to help with the whitetail population because it's exploding. I mean, I've heard a lot of this stuff. I've never, ever seen it substantiated. Um, It's kind of one of those like hearsay sort of stories, but. Yeah, that's interesting because isn't out there, I know, not so much in vermont and new hampshire but like pennsylvania and new york they have just have a huge deer population well we do too i mean we do too here i mean it's it the deer especially on the east coast because these habitats are so changed from 
we we killed off the wolves and the mountain lions, which were the top predators in this part of the the country. And I'm talking basically the whole East Coast down to, you know, the the Carolinas. I mean, the mountain lions and wolves they became a nuisance to to livestock and agriculture. So people started killing them off. Uh, and so we've changed these ha- these habitats. And then when the white-tailed deer and everything and the moose and all these other animals that bounce back after reforestation came and after places like New England were completely logged hundreds of years ago, those species have come back. And so deer population everywhere are just exploding. Uh, they're just out of control. I mean, in some areas, that's why you have a lot of the tick problems now too. There's just mm. so many. I mean, I know just here in New Hampshire, I get I have trail cameras out on my property and I get so many deer, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's like, if I don't see a deer, it's weird <laughs> on trail cameras. And I mean, we've seen them born right here in the yard and like, it's just, they're all over the place. They really are. So um, there's plenty of food. So if these things were coming out here, they wouldn't starve. That's for sure. Right. And I mean, th- this is total speculation, but it would, it would explain why the government you know, of the state, the state governments, they want to stay away from any sort of official evidence, you know, if they, if they are transporting them, if, you know, they don't want to, someone to find out, you know, who knows. They're letting some environmentalists do their dirty work or something like that. Right. Something like that. You <laughs> who, know? Knows? who knows? I mean, it's, it's, what's so weird about it is again, it's a mountain lion topic. You think it's just people know mountain lions are real, right? They are living animals yet. There's a conspiracy about it because of the way, yeah, there's just distrust and there's a lot of weird kind of things going on with it. Doesn't make sense. Right. Well, I, I know, like I the person my aunt who who swears she saw one, she doesn't she doesn't make up stories. She's like so straight edge, it's ridiculous. So like she tells me that I autom- I believe her. Um and I know within the same area where where suppose you know, I think there's one there's kids at this place called Kern hat and it's like a kind of a, a private school. Um, and they've seen deer in trees, you know, uh, mm. and, and I don't know if I sent you a video, I don't know if you saw it or not, but it was something weird where there was a killed you know, a deer that had been killed, but the, the carcass wasn't anywhere. There were no, like, uh, I don't know. It was just weird. And there were, there were no drag marks either, which I thought was, was strange. So, mm. I don't know. I was I was wondering I was kind of wondering what that was, but uh well it's interesting. I mean in New England, I think there are a lot of game cameras out there. And I think mountain lions, you know, they're not a primate, they're not something that could maybe detect or avoid as readily as a primate could a trail camera, like when it comes to the Bigfoot kind of argument. Um but we don't have a lot of trail camera, alleged great trail camera footage from in the northeast you know mm. but the thing is having done some stuff now down in south florida with the florida panthers and they're what florida panthers are they're basically just a mountain lion that's adapted to living in the swamps of south right. florida and like the everglades uh, there's a couple hundred of them that live down there and i found tracks and we've cast tracks i've got a whole collection of florida panther tracks over over here uh, you know we've kind of set we've ca- set game cameras out there and tried to capture them too capture footage of them you have them getting closer and closer to civilization so um florida wildlife commission which is their version of fishing game has a website or on their website the fwc fwc they have a panther tracker where you can go on there this is really cool actually you can see all the sightings that have been reported and people can actually submit their 
uh, well, it's only visually based. So it's if, if you saw one, you can't just report the sighting. They won't put it up there. You have to have some visual or mm. physical evidence. So if you found a track or you found a site, you have a picture you took of a, a mountain lion or a Florida panther, um, you can report it to them and they'll they'll put it on the map. And I've actually reported twice tracks that I found down there and they're on the Florida Wildlife Commission panther tracker. But what's really cool is they're using data from people that are just going about their lives living in these areas. And it's Florida, you have, it goes from wilderness to like super modern development. That line is very blurred. It's just, they're right, they butt up against each other. I mean, people get panthers and bears and gators and all kinds of stuff in their, on their property very, very often. So down there, it's interesting, but uh, all those sightings near Naples, Florida, and kind of towards the coastal areas, there's mountain lions eating people's pets. I mean, there's famous footage of this, uh, like one of those ring cameras or whatever that people have on their houses, mm-hmm. getting a, a house cat being eaten by a Florida panther. Wow. Um, so the, these people are living with these animals side by side, and increasingly they're getting into these urban environments. So you go to that Connecticut cat that was killed, and this thing was slinking around in one of the most densely populated areas of the entire United States right. before it was found because it was killed, struck by a car. So that's interesting. I mean, cats are obviously stealthy. They, they're pretty elusive. So that's kind of something very interesting about them and the whole mountain lion topic. But I think, I don't think personally that we have a lot of them here in New England. I think there's probably a few lingering around. And I mean, with all the space in Canada and everywhere else, they probably come through. There may be some male males that are kind of in the area. Um, Maybe that's what's going on. I don't know. Um, But that's, uh kind of intriguing to think about the possibility i suppose yeah i mean i i don't i this what i i saw tracks before i even thought about taking pictures of them and i kick myself every day you know when i'm up there i'm like i should have took pictures of that and i'm talking like 20 this is a span of 20 years that there's been consistent sightings of this cat in this area so sticking something's keeping it around or, or maybe it's a second generation somehow i don't know but I'm I'm pretty sure there's one at least in the Chester uh Rockingham area but um yeah I mean they they could go easily between New Hampshire and Vermont and the Green Mountains and all these places where people just don't go very often some of the more rural areas too so you know there's a lot of misidentifications for sure I've seen some of that but um some people have had very convincing sightings and unconvincing evidence and you know like that woman in Massachusetts or the guy right in new hampshire with the bio the biologist for whatever reason it's not taken seriously Hmm. so make Uh, of that what you will right right uh i don't know i don't know how much time you have left i know it's been about an hour um i don't know if you just want to talk about bigfoot really quick yeah we could dive into that a little bit maybe another 20 25 minutes or so all right perfect um because when you hear about bigfoot you know you think like down south in texas or washington and oregon you don't really think of of new england you know or maybe you know you there's the famous was in new york it was uh white white hall yes yeah yeah which is very close to which is right right on the vermont border i mean white hall essentially is is almost part of vermont basically right so yeah i mean you don't you don't think of about seeing bigfoot in this area but I, I see that you got tons of videos. Um, I haven't really watched a whole lot of them, but you must have come across some really some really cool sightings at least. 
Yeah, I mean, Bigfoot in New England is definitely, like you said, not something people think about. Um, but there's a long history of it or Sasquatch-like sightings here. Uh, I mean, just in my state of New Hampshire here, I've collected about 50 sightings, people that have told me their stories and encounters and that sort of thing. And then I know there's more on some of the other databases and I've heard stories that go back. Here's the thing about New England, what, especially people that are not from here, they don't understand that New England, northern New England, I mean, Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire are extremely rural like yes they're populated but not that much i mean new hampshire's got a population of 1.3 million maine's about the same but it's three times the size of new hampshire vermont's got like half a million people people think of new england as just being massachusetts connecticut rhode island millions of people right sure those states are uh you know pretty urban there are some rural areas in those states but not as much as up here for sure um so maine's the most forested state in the u.s percentage-wise number of forests. New Hampshire is number two most forested state in the U.S. Combine oh, wow. that with Vermont, and then you've got right across from Vermont, New York, upstate New York, the Adirondack State Park, which is one of the largest parks in the U.S. I mean, in terms of a state park, it's millions of acres, protected land, very ro remote rural areas. You've got Quebec just above us. Uh, that's extreme. You know, most of Quebec is rural wooded areas. So you have millions and millions and millions of acres if you combine New England, upstate New York, and Canada, you've got as much habitat in some areas as you do in the entire Pacific Northwest, from like Northern California to uh, British Columbia, some of those Southern areas in terms of that green belt where some of the Sasquatch settings really tend to come from. You've got just as much habitat out here and our mountains stretch all the way down to North Georgia, you know, the Appalachians go throughout this whole area. And that's where a bulk of the sightings of Sasquatch in the U.S. tend to come from is further down south and all up and down the Appalachians from Pennsylvania, New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. That's where a lot of this stuff happens. So uh, so we do have the habitat. I think just the history, because this area was kind of settled first, there's not, you don't have a lot of the indigenous records as much. A lot of those people were killed off. You know, they just, they, you know, that, that, that oral history isn't really known as it is, say, in British Columbia, some of the last tribes to be kind of interacting with uh, you know, the expansion of, of Canada and the U.S. going westward, those tribes in the West Coast, they they had this intact culture talking about hairy people in the woods or the Zonaqua or the Omas or the Sninik or all these other different kind of stories, The the uh, uh, just the Sasquatch. I mean, all these different stories, right? So we don't really have that so much as here. And I think culturally, it's still taboo. I mean, people have sightings and they don't want to talk about it. It's gotten a little better now with media and people talking about it being a, a phenomenon that's kind of in a lot of different places, including New England, but I think there's plenty of habitat. I mean, New Hampshire, for example, is used as an example, although Vermont and Maine are obviously going to be very similar. Uh, there's a lot of moose in New Hampshire. I mean, Maine has 70,000 moose. That's the most amount of moose anywhere in the U.S. outside of Alaska. Um, those are humongous animals, some of the largest in North America. I mean, to have the habitat, the resources to support animals that large and that quantity there's 30,000 black bear in Maine as well that's a lot of animal so right. I mean imagine having a couple hundred sasquatches throughout New England I mean there's more than enough resources in my opinion to support a few hundred of these kinds of things that's obviously a complete guess I'm not suggesting there's a few right. hundred but I'm just using kind of uh the math you know if there's that many moose I generally tend to look at moose as a good metric for the for a viability of a habitat you know you've got an animal that can be 
900 to 1200 pounds and it can survive and thrive in an environment that probably means that other species can do pretty well that are beneath uh you know moose in terms of size and resource needs so there's definitely habitat in Sasquatch for habitat for Sasquatch in my opinion in New England and I've taken reports from across New Hampshire obviously there's areas like the White Mountains and up in Nicolas County that are protected land hundreds of thousands of acres that connects to other millions of acres in other states uh, with contiguous habitat and remote terrain that people just don't get into I mean just some of these places you just can't even get into so um yeah, the, I think the, the possibility is here for sure. And I mean, I've taken a lot of reports. I've had kind of incidents happen both in Vermont and New Hampshire. I've done investigations in Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, this whole kind of area. Um, it, it may be hard to understand for people, but the, the, the sightings are very similar. I mean, some of the reports I've taken here in New Hampshire or in other states in New England, they are they, they mirror some of the stuff being reported in, say, Washington or Northern California. I mean, similar behaviors, similar things mm. going on. So uh, there's something going on. Are there any hot spots like in New Hampshire or, or Vermont? Well, the problem is with the term hot spot is that uh, it implies that there's one area that's going to have constant activity, which right. uh, with this topic it seems to be that doesn't that's not usually the case. I mean, usually it's just areas that are so that are wooded and, and provide habitat, whether they be mm. mountains or swamps. Problem with New Hampshire is, as I mentioned, it's the second most forested state. So you've got like 85, 90% of the state is woods. Uh, even if there's people like where I live, I mean, it's the middle of nowhere and I got woods all around me. And there's a, you know, there's some sightings that have happened not that far from here. Just like there's mountain lion sightings that have happened not that far from here. Cause, and you know, I, we get moose out here. I've got moose on my game cameras. I've got black bear. I've got fishers. I've got more white tailed deer than I know what to do with. Um, you've got every other species is present here. And you have reports of, you know, both mountain lions and Sasquatch, obviously, and, and to a much lesser degree Sasquatch, because I think if these things are around and they're moving through some of these more populated rural areas, you know, they're, they're kind of moving through, they're not exactly sticking around. You have rashes of sightings that have happened where something will be seen for like a week or two, and then it's just no longer seen in the area. It's like a mountain lion maybe that's moving through an area and is just seen in one area and then moves on seems to be kind of the case with some of the Sasquatch stuff, at least. You've got cases like the Durham, Durham Gorilla case up in Maine, I believe in the 70s or the 80s. Uh, the Hollis kind of set of sightings that happened in New Hampshire, other places as well. But then you've got areas like the Green Mountains of Vermont. I mean, hotspot, again, it's, it's a loaded term because it could be really kind of anywhere. And if you look at like New Hampshire reports, for me, they're all over the place. There's some in Colas County. There's, you know, I've got Cheshire County, Hillsborough County, uh, Grafton County, mm. all these other counties, uh, just co-ops. I mean, it's kind of all over the place because the mm. habitat is there. I mean, there's some areas that actually you'd think in the more even rural areas you would you would see more. But like up north, we have sparse population. You don't have a lot of sightings because you need people to have a sighting of a Sasquatch. So they tend to be in more of these rural areas that are they still have some population. Um, you know, Vermont, of course, has uh, people kind of call it the Northeast Kingdom up there towards the Canadian border. There's stuff that's happened there. I One of my first Sasquatch interviews I ever did back in like 2016 or so was with a guy who was from Newport Center, Vermont, I believe, way up north on the Canadian border. Yeah, He was snowmobiling and um, he ran into this thing and it was they had like a kind of a face off. Or he was staring at it and the way he did it was, it was really changing my opinion about not not the opinion about the topic, but 
made me realize like something really is going on uh, because he described when he was looking into this thing's eyes, it was almost like a feeling, it looked like it was disgusted or surprised. And he's, and he felt that it had a sort of, uh, it wasn't like you're looking at a deer or another animal that just kind of acts on instinct. He's like, this thing looked like it had thoughts and feelings and it was thinking and it wasn't just like a normal animal. Uh, he described this like Neanderthal caveman kind of hairy mm. creature looking thing, which is, you know, typical for a lot of the Sasquatch reports. So one of the first interviews, yeah, was Vermont, Northern Vermont. And I've interviewed people across New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine. And now, of course, the rest of the U.S. too, Alaska, California, Colorado, Florida. I mean, I can't even name all of them off the top of my head. Right. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, with such a broad focus now, I'm, I'm doing stuff all over the place. But obviously, New Hampshire and New England, I've had a particular interest in for a while, well before I started doing documentaries on it, and gathering the stories uh, before then. And it's cool to be able to do videos on those topics now because those are investigations that I've kind of personally been looking into for a while. So um, yeah, there, there, there's definitely an abundance of reports in New Hampshire. I mean, even going back, you've got stories of the wood devils up in Northern New Hampshire and Coas County. You've got the Glastonbury area in Vermont has the sort yep. of a lot of those disappearances, but some people say there's a Bigfoot like creature in that area too. I've had stuff happen in the green mountains of Vermont. We've had stuff thrown at us out there while camping, hearing wood knocks kind of typical sort of purported behavior supposedly so um yeah i think it's in new england is probably the most under well i should say northern new england is the most underrated area for bigfoot reports like there are stuff that goes in massachusetts too and there's a great research group called squatchachusetts down there in mass (laughs) and they look into the stuff and and western mass like the berkshires very similar obviously to parts of vermont uh very rural there's plenty of great sightings uh you know some very credible ones out there too, but uh, it's kind of that area. And then Northern New England seems to have obviously the, the best type of habitat for these things because they could just slide into Canada or back and forth mm. and all this food and all this acreage that's just available. Um, yeah. So I think this, this region is is the most underrated in terms of Bigfoot. And there's just so many interesting stories and sightings that I've heard of and been told about um, that there's something definitely going on here. Sasquatch wise. Have you, uh, have you noticed like a maybe like a migratory pattern of any sort? Not necessarily migratory. I think, and I know it's been suggested before these things kind of migrate, but I, I haven't seen any evidence that convinces me of that. I mean, I don't know. Where a lot of this is so hy- hypothetical, mm. so speculative yeah. in nature that it's tough to say. But again, just the sightings seem to be all over the place. Like there, there's actually well, one of the interests I should say. Now that I'm thinking about it, I wouldn't consider this necessarily migratory, but I think it's just sort of ease of use. Um, in New Hampshire, something I've noticed, along with some other researchers in New Hampshire, have noticed sightings along power lines, sightings and activity either on a power line or very close to it. I've experienced stuff personally along a power line kind of near a research area. It's been featured in some of my videos. Uh, and, and then in a completely other area, different side of the state, uh, we found a track, we casted a track last uh, end of March into April, uh, and there's been sightings a few miles down that power line, a few miles up that power line in that one particular area of like central New Hampshire. So other animals use the power lines to move. I mean, just as ease of use. I mean, imagine you look at a thick patch of trees and you see this area that's been cut. It's a lot lower brush, even if you're an animal, like, oh, I'm going to go that way. That looks easier, right? <laughs> 
maybe they're just using it for transport, that sort of thing. I wouldn't necessarily call that a migration. Just think it's maybe right, convenient, right. convenience kind of thing. But there's plenty of sightings from across the U.S. of other sightings along power lines. Um, heard of some in Kentucky, even that I, in an area that I went to that I had some stuff happen in uh, sightings there. But just, yeah, like I said, that's the one thing I noticed in New Hampshire is that power lines, you know, two separate occasions I have reports near power lines and I've personally experienced stuff right on a power line too. I was out one time hiking this area with my uh, brother and we came up on this ridge on this power line area and uh, right as I'm pulling my audio recorder out, we hear this loud wood knock, single wood knock. And uh, I mean, it was, it was very, very weird. Uh, it was all I can say. It was dead quiet that night. And it was the day after I'd had some other kind of stuff happen right in the same area. Um, so yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, it's obviously inconclusive. There's a lot of theories, a lot of theorizing. How do these th things stay hidden? You know, what, how do they do it? Where are they? Maybe there's right. not a lot of them. So you could have one, maybe you have two or three in, in an area like Southwestern New Hampshire, and they're just moving around for a number of years. And maybe the, there's a sighting here and there. But that's all that there is, is just a few of them. I, that's, I, I don't know. You know, that, that's kind of where where um, a lot of the speculation comes in, because that's really a lot of what, what we have is just speculation and theories and those sorts of things. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I had. I know my listeners have heard heard the story probably 100 times, but uh, I was I was hunting in 2000. I remember it was 2017 opening day and I was up in the woods, you know, around where this mountain lion that I was talking about, it's either a mountain lion or maybe it's a Bigfoot. I don't know in this area, but I was, we were up there and a hunter, he was coming down off the mountain and he was all, he looked scared and he was, he was like, Oh yeah, you know, I was hunting and, and I got spooked and I'm, you know, I'm coming down or whatever. And uh, so I go up um, and as I'm going up, I start hearing this, what sounds like a Turkey but it, it's something trying to sound like a turkey, like a turkey call. Oh, wow. As I get closer to it, it starts turning into more of like a grunt or a growl. Um, and then when I get like as close as I felt comfortable, there were four tree knocks. It was like boom, 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 boom. Uh, and then I was just like, I got to get out of here. I don't, I don't know what this is. Um, and I mean, I had my rifle, my handgun, and I was like, I got to, this is, this isn't right. I got to go. Uh, and I don't know, maybe it wasn't. See, see, that's interesting. I mean, that's interesting because something mimicking a turkey, right? right? And then these wood knock type noises. I mean, that's kind of typical. I've heard plenty of that. Um, it reminded me of a story I heard when I was in Pennsylvania a number of years ago in an area in central Pennsylvania. PA's got a lot of Bigfoot sightings, a lot of habitat, a lot of rural farms, a lot of hunters, some of the most most hunting in the U.S., I think, registered hunters in Pennsylvania. So you got a lot of people out in the woods. And this one guy was describing this. Uh, they had a lot of these encounters near a property there as they lived kind of near a wooded ravine. And they were having just other activities, strange stuff. And, you know, they would say at night they put their chickens away and then they hear something in the woods mimicking what their chickens sound like. But, it, you know, it's not a chicken. It's just right. like it sounds like a chicken, but, you know, it's not a chicken. Mm. So it's it's interesting the way you described the turkey thing saying you know it was yeah. almost like it didn't you know you knew it wasn't a turkey like I originally thought it was a a person or like another hunter you know yeah because it didn't sound turkey. like a turkey it just sounded like somebody trying to sound like a turkey right um 
But if it was a hunter, another I never saw anything. If it was another hunter, I could have easily have shot him. You know, I knew where right. this was coming from. It was right there in the in the stick. You know, there were a bunch of saplings and they were really thick. I couldn't see through them, but it was coming from that area. And I could have easily just, you know, freaked out and, and shot this, whatever it was. But Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's the danger of somebody being in the woods like that and not being responsive, right? I mean, that's just really weird. Not something people usually do. I mean, right. But in those yeah. tree knocks, I mean, that's why I originally. That's weird. I yeah. I think it was a Bigfoot. Yeah, it's interesting, man. I mean, I'll tell you, like I said, New England, it'll surprise you with the amount of sightings and uh, some of them are just extremely credible. I mean, for example, one of my favorite ones that I've heard of a story that was relayed to me, um, and I remember the exact details, but I did this library talk over in Dover, New Hampshire back in early 2020, right before COVID started. And one of my favorite parts of doing these library talks is people get to come up afterwards and tell me their stories, mm. or any local stories they know. It's a great way to get actual physical reports, which is awesome. But she tells me the story of either her father or uncle, who's a prison camp guard in northern New Hampshire in Coas County in a place called Stark Camp, which world, during the Second World War, they had German POWs there. And that area is very well known for logging. I mean, Berlin is called the city that trees built i mean it's a very heavy logging kind of area as is most of northern new england especially northern new hampshire northern maine kind of thing i mean all that territory in maine those those hundreds of thousands of acres are privately owned it's logging companies that sort of thing but um, back to the story of star camp they put these germans on logging duty right that's what they were doing they were harvesting trees and, and doing all that sort of stuff. And they apparently were being freaked out because they were seeing some kind of a gorilla looking thing in the woods and they did not want to go back on the logging duty. It's a very weird report. And I guess the, the locals who were in the camp, they, they were like, oh, they're seeing wood devils because that's a story that goes back up there to the 1800s. I mean, that's a weird one, right? Like if they're making up a random animal to try to get out of doing this logging right. duty, why not make up you saw rhino you saw something you know it's like why would they why so specifically a gorilla right i know like a giant bear or something you know yeah it's like you could yeah bear or moose like that, something that makes sense but those guys aren't from that area like right, right. they're prisoners of, prisoners of war they're not there by choice um so they they wouldn't know about any local bigfoot like stories when in the case of the wood devil so that's a really interesting one there, there's tons of other ones um that just really kind of make you think, well, what did this person actually encounter? I mean, it just doesn't make any logical sense unless you're willing to perhaps question the possibility, could something like a Sasquatch-like creature exist? Mm. And what's so interesting is not only, you know, when you look at the New England stuff, you combine it with stuff from other parts of North America, Canada, and the U.S., you just have this startling consistency of behavior, whether they be the reported kind of rock throws, the whoops, the wood knocks, sometimes the smell, the way the sightings happen, the road crossings, just the, the randomness of some of the encounters are very consistent, but people who live thousands of miles away from each other that have no way of getting in contact with each other, especially pre-internet, we had no knowledge of how to contact each other as they could today, but they couldn't then, but they're reporting almost the same exact thing. And, and in the same areas. I mean, if this is all some sort of mass hallucinations or mass psychosis, why aren't people seeing this sort of thing in a little park in Brooklyn or some urban areas? Why is it that when you map the sightings, 
there's a startling consistency in terms of that the places it happens in mountain mountainous areas or rural areas abutting wilderness areas along the east coast like i said the appalachians down into florida and some of those swamplands and you've got the rocky mountains obviously out west that's where sightings are happening there and then those those coastal mountain ranges that go from northern california all the way to southeast alaska that's where 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 this stuff is happening so I, to me, it speaks that there is some sort of a consistent behavior that's being exhibited by a species of some kind, um, as opposed to all mass hallucinating the same type of thing. So that is obviously kind of intriguing. I mean, uh, we don't know what's going on, but something is, and it, it definitely seems to have a pretty interesting consistency in my view. Yeah. Um, so I guess I only had... Maybe one or two more questions here. Uh, so this this doesn't have to to be in New England, but what? So what? Do you have a scary story? Like, what was the most afraid you've been on on one of your adventures? You know, when you're in the middle of nowhere and it's dark out and something happens. You know, has has anything like that ever happened? I mean, people ask and like. I don't want to make it seem like I'm not scared, but I've never, I've, I haven't had a lot of crazy encounters that of, of just with anything in general that really freaked me out. Um, there's a couple though. And one of them is not Bigfoot related or anything like that, but this yeah. was uh, in Oregon. It was just a really weird, weird incident. We were out in the Mount Hood wilderness area, which is an area well-known for Bigfoot sightings. We were actually in at a location uh, near a, a, a pretty interesting sighting that happened in the past of guy fishing with his kids on this river middle of nowhere and this sasquatch comes out of the woods and is aggressively trying to get him out of the area and he uses his fishing rod to kind of defend himself and is holding it forward and this thing just uses its hand to push the fishing rod they end up leaving the area you know they're freaked out and that was documented in a book by a guy named joe Bielard called the oregon bigfoot highway so we go to this location. This is back in 2021. There was a bunch of us, like seven or eight of us, doing a kind of filming out there. This is in the Bigfoot Beyond the Trail, Bigfoot Mountain episode on the Small Town Monsters channel. But uh, we're just hanging out. There's another car kind of, we're going to camp in this area that's this this road sort of curves around. You go down this little hill and there's there's this primitive campsite. It's not like an official campsite or anything. You just pull in. It's got a firing. People have used it before, right? It's one of those kind of national forest type campsites. And we we pull into that, we set up camp and, and we know there's another car there and we can hear like talking in the woods. So we're thinking, oh, somebody else, maybe they're fishing, maybe they're down by the river because they were down where the river was. Didn't think much of it. Starting at dark, we're hanging up. A bunch of us are up by the car. Uh, we had a couple trucks up there and, and some vehicles, you know, that we'd come in. There's four or five of us up there and there's another three dudes down in the camp and they're, they're making noise being loud whatever we're all just kind of quietly talking up there whatever and all of a sudden out of the woods this dude just walks out and he's wearing this weird black vest golden vest thing he's looking like really strange looking guy he kind of looks surprised to see us and he just starts walking past us this weird lanky kind of walk and we're like what the heck <laughs> and one of the guys there says you go going for an evening walk and the guy's like, yep, and just keeps going, walks away. And we're like, where, where is he walking? And one guy says, well, there's nothing down where he's walking. So this doesn't make any sense. So we're thinking, okay, it's kind of weird. It starts getting dark. Um, down where we can kind of see through the trees, there's a little area where these people are. And we start seeing these like, like tiki torches 
in a circle kind of lit up and people making noise and they start walking around in circles and doing weird stuff. And we're thinking, what the heck is going on? And so we decided to pack up camp and get out of there. And we looked into their truck and they had a pentagram hanging in the windshield and animal bones that had been painted hanging in there. And I realized I, I found a, these trails that kind of go through the woods. And I realized I found the one where this guy came up to come out of the woods because he thought we were in camp. He didn't know there was anyone up by the cars. So he's thinking, because if you're standing up on that road, you can look down into camp and see it. But when you're looking from camp up at the road, they can't see you the way that the trees were working. So he could walk around and, and scout us out, see what we were up to without us ever knowing it. But his plans were busted because we were up at the trucks where we weren't supposed to be. So that was a weird instance. I, I don't know if it was this. It was kind of freaky. I mean, we were there was a bunch of us, so it's not like I was alone. But there's been times where I've been alone and just kind of it's it can be a little scary. But we've had, I mean, I've had encounters with things that would kind of fit the bill of purported Sasquatch behavior. Nothing I could say is definitively Sasquatch, but um, you know, just you got to realize the dangers out there. I mean, you're when you're in country with uh, mountain lions and grizzly bear and huge moose places out west you got to really be kind of aware of that sort of thing where even if you fell and broke your foot and fell into a ravine you're never going to be seen again kind of thing so i wouldn't say that there's been a particular moment thankfully that that it's been like that but uh yeah there's been a few kind of weird moments with strange people you see out there and just strange things that happen yeah <laughs> i wonder what they were doing out there doesn't sound some kind of ritual or something i don't know yeah, it was weird. Sketchy. Yeah, we we wanted to get out of there. I mean, it's not that far from Portland, Oregon. So there's there's obviously all kinds of strange people hanging around, <laughs> and you, you drive through Portland, you see it's a little bit of a weird town. So mm. who who knows what they were up to? I mean, we can only guess, but uh, it was creepy. The fact that they were creeping on us was the weird part, you know. Right, was, right. They're um, just leaving us alone. I wouldn't care so much, but uh, yeah. That is kind of weird. Who knows? I mean, that's how uh, these true true crime podcasts start out. <laughs> right. Um, so I guess my last question was like, what do you think a Sasquatch is? You know, do you have any, you, you've probably heard hundreds of, of encounters, you know. I know that there's there's two, some people think it's something paranormal. Some people think it's, you know, flesh and blood. Some people think it's in the middle somehow. I don't know. Like, yeah. yeah. From what you've, from all these encounters that you've heard and all these places you've been, do you have any idea? I yeah. don't really know. I mean, because I lean more towards flesh and blood or some kind of a biological creature. Um, and there's a caveat to that and I'll, I'll, I'll address it. But uh, I get the feeling that, you know, there's, just having seen literally I've driven from New Hampshire to Alaska. I mean, I've seen so much of North America. I've been absolutely blessed to see some of the most remote areas and know it's actually frightening how much habitat there still is out there and places where you could just walk off a mile off the road and never be seen again. I mean, that's how vast North America is. We humans are very grouped in certain areas, especially Canada. I mean, they all live within like an hour yeah. of the U S border in a couple of cities and that's it. And you've got the second largest country on earth, the population of like 38 million people. And they, and most of, and half of that is like Toronto, right? <laughs> Where everything else is just woods. 
Alaska, even the lower 48, even parts of New Hampshire and Maine, where you could just absolutely disappear. Um, so there's habitat for sure for something to stay hidden. I mean, what it is, I don't know. I mean, even, there's obviously the paranormal stuff's a lot more popular now, I think, uh, just because the, the story's a little more sensational. So mm-hmm. mo- most Bigfoot, I've, I've talked to hundreds of Bigfoot eyewitnesses at this point. Not all of them are credible, and some of them are very credible. Like there's a whole spectrum. Some some are misidentified. Some are purposefully faking stuff. Um, then there's some that I, I have absolutely no doubt that they truly believe what they saw, and I have no reason to doubt them because of their character, you know, whatever other factors I've kind of associated with them as as credibility of a witness. Um, but most sightings tend to be, oh, it crossed the road in front of me, or I saw it while I was out hiking, or it was on the riverbank as we were on the boat. Uh, that kind of thing. It's like a fleeting glimpse. So there's not a lot to it. It just kind of happens. It's a quick encounter. Uh, you know, one guy up in Maine, for example, uh, another snowmobiling story, like I told you with the one earlier in Vermont, mm-hmm. uh, he was with a bunch of guys and they were snowmobiling and this thing walked in, in between the trees up there and they kind of looked at it and they, they were kind of confused. What is this thing doing out in the middle of nowhere? Is this big guy wearing like a big black outfit? Doesn't make any sense. We're snowmobiling in the middle of northern Maine. I mean, most inhospitable place you could be. And they kind of said like, hey, or screamed at it and let out this vocalization and just lumbered off into the tree line. Um, so that kind of thing. I mean, there's nothing really weird associated with that other than seeing a Sasquatch. There's no orbs or no other weird factors. And so majority of the reports I've personally taken or heard, vast majority are like that, where there's just a, there's just the seeing a Sasquatch or rocks thrown, vocals, you know, associated things. There's only a handful that involve seeing UFOs or other types of things that, you know, so those that those are the not the rule. You know, those are the exceptions, not the rule. Uh, whatever these things are, even if it is some weird paranormal thing, I mean, they leave physical imprints. We found footprints, hair samples. You get stuff thrown at you. I mean, there's some kind of physical interaction. So I don't know. I think the precedent is interesting for, you know, what these things could be possibly something closer to humans something not necessarily a on the homo kind of lineage but sort of hominid of some kind hominid hominin i don't know um not like a gorilla or a chimp something clearly that's bipedal that's more similar to us than chimps and gorillas and orangutans which are already very similar to us but uh you just have this like i said this consistency of behavior speaks to a species to me because if these things are, are paranormal or have some sort of weird abilities. Why, again, why are people not seeing them in Brooklyn or very urban areas? Like even right. if they are paranormal, they're still clustered to these natural areas that have conducive habitat for tons of other wildlife. Uh, they've been seen interacting with wildlife, taking deer, taking fish, eating clams on the beach, eating crawfish, eating alligators, eating hogs hunting you know there's a lot of sightings that involve those kinds of activities so that's like a physical interaction and then i mean the the precedent is there for some sort of hominid ape-like creature to exist i mean you have what the really weird part is that you have these behaviors that are described in sasquatch that have been known about for maybe a long time that have been now discovered to possibly be behaviors in actual apes like gorillas and chimps i mean you've got the stories of wood knocks and rock throws throwing rocks has been reported in North America for centuries, right? And even some of the woodknock type stuff. Well, we know chimps throw rocks at trees. It's been observed. They almost use it as a communicate, communicative thing or it's like primitive tool usage. 
possibly wood knocking. You, know, you hear one wood knock here, one up there. Uh, people often describe smell with the Sasquatch. So you've got reports with smell. It's only a minority reports. It's not all the time, which if you argue, you know, like you have something like the skunk ape in Florida, which is kind of Florida's version of Sasquatch. And it's got, it's supposed to smell pretty bad, right? People would assume, oh, it's just, if you live in that kind of environment, you probably just smell really bad. Sure, but why is it that not all Sasquatch reports have a smell element to them? Only some do. Like it's a select number and it's not, there's no pattern to it. You have sightings in Colorado with smell and then 10 other sightings that don't have smell. You'll have a sighting in New Hampshire with smell and then five others don't have any smell. Why is that? Well, we actually know that gorillas can control their scent glands. It's like if you were able to control your BO when you're angry or agitated, you can release an odor. Gorillas can actually do that. So that's kind of a weird parallel. And this is one I recently learned about uh, these, these uh, scientists studying gorillas in the Congo in central um, Africa and, and the mountain gorillas. They believe that uh, these mountain gorillas can create infrasonic vocalizations, that their, their vocalizations is the first primate that's ever been documented to have infrasound where it has an effect on the females. You know, it's the it's a inf, what infrasound is it's frequencies that are too low for us to hear as humans various animals use it whales use it to communicate elephants can use it to communicate i guess underground i mean it's frequencies that we can't hear it's totally crazy uh, they've done experiments on people with infrasound where when you play infrasound it can create feelings of depression anger dread mm-hmm. like it's frequencies that we just cannot hear and we think a lot of animals we're just starting on to to kind of understand these frequencies animals are able to use it for communication there's theories that tigers are able to use it to stun their prey i mean people and then what's so interesting when it comes to the sasquatch topic you have people for years that have talked about hearing a sasquatch vocalization feeling it vibrate through their chest or Mm -hmm. people call it zapping or something like that i mean i think if if a gorilla roared at you you're probably just going to be shocked as what's happening, let alone an eight foot tall ape-like creature in North America that's not supposed to be there. But the fact that this article came out recently that talked about gorillas having vocalizations that has an effect on the female gorillas, that obviously has something to do with mating in their case. They call it the berry white effect. I kid you not. It's it that's really interesting precedent because it goes then to again, I know a friend of mine personally has had an encounter where he had something wipe its hand against the tent up in northern New Hampshire in the White Mountains and then let out this weird vocalization that he said he could feel it vibrating in his chest and it kind of really freaked him out and that's something you hear the the vibration in the chest kind of thing a lot with these kinds of encounters and reports so you have a precedent for multiple alleged Sasquatch behaviors in known apes that exist now am I saying Sasquatch is like a gorilla no absolutely not we're not like gorillas, but we're still related to them. We're very different, but we're still related to them. Sasquatches seem to be a little bit closer to us, but with more habits that might be more ape-like, as in living, you know, living without fire and tool usage and clothing and all this kind of stuff. But clearly, if you look at the, the the alleged footprints, they look much more human-like than they do like other chimps or gorillas or other apes. So, long story short, that's kind of my answer for what what I think Sasquatch might be. Yeah, I mean, that all sounds pretty good. Um, I did have one uh, one last question, actually, that I just thought of. Uh, dog man. This is like a huge popular thing right now. What, what what's your take on it? Um, I I don't know what I what I think personally. 
but uh yeah i i don't know either i'm not going to get too into it but uh i've never really run across a report i mean i've heard of alleged stories obviously other people with small town monsters have done dogman related projects um, i don't know what's going on i mean i'm mostly focused on sasquatch so like dogman stuff isn't really on my radar mm. um, but I, I think the idea of a upright bipedal canine just doesn't make any sense if it's a, like a flesh and blood animal makes no sense at all mm. um whereas as again talking about precedent with sasquatch apes primates they exist we are right. one of them right. so like th- there is there is a precedent for that kind of thing being biologically possible whereas dogman there wouldn't be i mean you you wouldn't have that as a biological possibility and also when it comes to sasquatch you have reports people say it was the worst thing that happened to them. it was terrifying some people it was the best thing that ever happened it was the most incredible thing that they ever seen in their life the reports vary depends on what happened i've not heard of one dogman report where the person thought it was a good fun time it always seems to be super evil or menacing and right. the only real experience i have with the topic is looking into the rougarou down in louisiana a little bit and i wouldn't know if that, i don't know if that'd be considered dogman or like a traditional werewolf story but yeah like i said it's not really my focus um unless i come right. across something that would change my mind it's I, I acknowledge it's there but it's not like i'm really i have a strong opinion one way or another i just sort of go with the flow and Again, it's just something that's there, but I don't really, uh, I don't have a strong opinion one way or another, I guess. Right. I know back in the day, uh, Joseph Citro was looking into some Rougarou sightings up north in northern Vermont. Um, I, I found that interesting. It's not something. Yeah, that is interesting. But... Yeah, I mean, unless I come across something, um, it's, it's just going to kind of be something that's there. It's on the peripheral. It's not, it's not the main focus. Right. But, uh, yeah, no, it's definitely, you're right. It's very popular now. There's a lot of podcasts talking about it, obviously, you know, doing documentaries on it and that sort of thing too. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm trying to get a hold of this guy who had a sighting in North Carolina and then he moved up north in Vermont here. Says he's got him on his property. Um, hmm. I'm trying to get up there. <laughs> oh, that'd be interesting. I just, I just want to go and see. I mean, I'd probably, I'd, I'd, I'd probably just let him eat me if I if I saw one. I don't, I don't know what I'd do. I'd just chip <laughs> pants or something. I don't know. Hope hope to uh you know have someone to throw in front of it and make your escape, right? right? right. Throw your research partner in front. <laughs> yeah, something like that. But yeah, I mean, that was really that was really it. That's all I had. Cool. But yeah, people want to talk about it. It's fun to talk about this stuff. You know, it's cool. We're talking with you because I got to do a little bit of the champ and the mountain line stuff. I don't get to do that as much because right, most right. people want to talk about Bigfoot, obviously. That's yeah. kind of what I'm known for now. So right. <laughs> it's cool to be able to revisit the champ stuff and even the mountain line stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely interested in the mountain lines. Like, I swear there's one behind my grandparents' house. I, I've never seen it, but I've got family members who have. Something and I, going I on. I swear it's there. So and yeah, it makes sense. I mean, they're, they're, they're got to be around somewhere. And I mean, I, I sent you a video. I don't know if you saw it, but I went up there to where my Bigfoot sighting was. I don't know if you want to call it that or not. And the deer had been killed. It had been like propped up against this fallen log. All the hair and everything was ripped out. But the carcass wasn't there and there were no drag marks. And I followed a, a small blood trail, you know, a little bit of hair here and there up the mountain. Uh, and twigs had been broken off about like, you know, chest high. But I filmed as much as I could, but I could never find a carcass or anything. So I don't think it was a hunter. 
but hmm. or yeah, why not? Who knows? yeah i mean i don't know but it's a weird one that's my that's my experience with the unknown <laughs> not not a whole lot but right on all right uh thanks yeah. for having me on man yeah no thank thank you for coming on <laughs> i know you're Absolutely. so busy so no i appreciate it uh, it was like i said it was fun talking about the uh topics i don't get to necessarily cover a lot lately so yeah yeah cool awesome. thank you all right take it easy buddy see ya bye-bye bye all right guys that was alex Petikov. he does a lot of work with small town monsters obviously as i said earlier uh but he does you know his own his own work too so i don't want to say he's of small town monsters but i think most of his work is through small town monsters um but yeah, I mean, he's run the gambit of of cryptids and monsters and mysteries and and all this good stuff. But like you said, he's mostly known as the Bigfoot guy now, um, which is you know that's that's good for him. But like he also said, he is he does he he was happy that he got to talk about you know some of this other stuff that he's covered, such as you know the mountain lions, which is very interesting. And I oh like it's. Like, oh man, I wish I just had a video or or pictures of of um of this 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 footprint that I that I've seen. I've seen one in the snow, I've seen one in the dirt, uh multiple, you know, de- a decade apart. Uh and I could go on and on and on about this. Like my aunt's seen one, my uncle's seen one. I've got a coworker who saw one trying to get at our chickens. So yeah, I mean the mountain lions, they're they're all over okay never mind i take that back they're not all over but they're here and it it is weird how the state states i should say you know these states here in new england maine uh massachusetts connecticut new hampshire and vermont how they don't want to admit to it like and like i i had told them in the beginning a game warden had told me that you're more likely to see a bigfoot than you are a mountain lion so who knows? Maybe it is conspiracy. Uh, when I was talking to him, he he did he I did have an idea come to mind. So and he he kind of went over it a little bit. You know, they got this this explosion of deer population, um, and I know the deer population out in Pennsylvania and New York is just far. It exceeds what we have here in New England. Um, like they're they're just you know, you could drive down you know, a, a 10 mile strip of road in Pennsylvania and see 20 dead deer on the side of the road. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so it, 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 he, the stock came to my mind that if, if these governments are bringing in these mountain lions to kill off these deer, they don't want to, they don't want anything to come back on them. You know, they're not technically not supposed to be doing this. Um, so when they get real evidence like the evidence uh from that Massachusetts couple with the with the horse or you know this confirmed mountain lion video that was taking in I think I think he said northern New Hampshire you know they 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 want to ignore it they don't want you know they don't want the publicity behind behind these these bits of evidence but uh but yeah that was uh Alexander Petikov Super busy dude. So glad to have him on. He is definitely more than almost canon. <laughs>